You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word for his people. And that means when we are reading the Bible, we are hearing God speak. The passage today comes from um, the book of Romans, um, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Please follow along with your own Bibles, otherwise the passages will be on the screen as well. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Gracious God, we ask that as we open your word and we look at the glories of the cross of your son, that you might open our eyes so that we might behold wondrous things from your instruction through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I know that some of you here have been checking out Christianity for some time. You're not yet sure what you believe. You're not yet over the line as such. You're not a Christian. You wouldn't call yourself that. But you've been reading the Bible. You've been learning more about Jesus. And along the way, you may have realized that the Bible is a deep book. That knowing God is, as, is an experience as vast as the skies and as deep as the, as the oceans. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if God is God, then surely knowing him would be an exercise as infinite as he is. But if that's the case, you might wonder, well, where do I begin? What, where, how do I even know this God? In fact, give me a hand here. What sits at the heart of who he is? What lies at the center of the Bible? What is that one truth that, if I knew it, all other realities would then fall into place? What is the crux of Christianity? Now, you'll be glad to know that God actually doesn't make it too hard to find out. In in fact, he he puts it up right in headlights, and here it is. The crux of Christianity is the cross of Christ. The crux of Christianity is the cross of Christ. The death of the Lord Jesus sits at the heart of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul describes the Christian tradition in these words. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. The the crux of Christianity is the cross of Christ. It's the death of Jesus. But you might wonder, why? Why Jesus' death? And why his death on a cross? Let me explain, right? In the first century, crucifixion, it was the most savage means of execution in the known world. 
that the Roman Empire reserved this punishment for the worst of crimes committed, for the, committed by the scum of the earth. This is how Cicero described crucifixion, as a most cruel and disgusting punishment that is unworthy of a Roman citizen or a free man. And for a Jew, it actually would have been so much worse. You see, for to die by execution, to hang on a tree, in the words of Deuteronomy 21, is to sit under the curse of God. The cross is a tool of torture, a demonstration of defeat, a symbol of shame. So why in the world would that be the crux of Christianity? Surely, why not choose something more positive, more victorious, more triumphant? Why not a sword or a scepter? Why not a display of power and glory? Or, if we were to do God's work for him, even running with the Bible storyline, why not an empty grave? Surely an empty grave would be a more convincing sign, wouldn't it? Why the cross? Why would Christianity be so foolish as to place this symbol of defeat, of torture, of shame at its heart? Just one word. Salvation. Salvation. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, as you think you might be, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Because for all of its suffering and for all of its shame, the cross is the power of God for salvation. It is, it is a power so great, in fact, that all the suffering and all the shame of this world, can I promise you, it'll be worth it all. For at the cross, at that disgusting place of defeat and death, Jesus saves us from the deepest problem that confronts us all. In fact, I want to say to you right now, Christian or not, if you're sitting in this room, this is the deepest problem that confronts us all. He saves us from the wrath of God. He saves us from the wrath of God. What do you think is the fundamental problem of our world? Some people claim that the greatest problem in this world is the world and its brokenness, disaster, disease, and death. Other people claim that our greatest problem is our flesh and its weakness, our lovelessness, our hatred, and our division. And still others think that our greatest problem is the devil and his work, dark forces, evil spirits, demonic powers, and in one sense, all three are right. The three great enemies of every believer are the world, the flesh, and the devil. But can I say that all these are mere symptoms of a far deeper disease? Uh, this week I've been up at the Gold Coast. We're part of a denomination called the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. And once a year, our senior pastors go away, we get together and see what's going on within our network, pray about and commit it to the Lord. But one of the pastors there was sharing the experience that last year his son was experiencing a deep pain in his left foot. So what did he do? For months, he was taking painkillers, going to see the physio, but no one really quite knew what the cause of his pain was. Until they operated on his foot, they thought actually it was a sack of liquid that they could drain, but it didn't drain as they thought. And when they cut his foot open, they found a synovial carcinoma, a cancer wrapped around the lining of his ankle, a cancer that does not respond to chemotherapy. Literally a question 
of life or limb. And you just think about it, for this young guy, 14 years old, 14 years old, as acute as the pain was in his left foot, it was symptomatic of something far deeper. A disease as deadly as you could ever imagine. And friends, so too is it with the pain of our world. Disease, disaster, death, as tragic as they are, are mere symptoms of our deepest and most incurable illness. All of us sit under the wrath of God. Here's the hard message about the gospel. Friends, we are a people under judgment. We are a people under judgment. And we see this right throughout the scriptures. As early as Genesis 3, God personally curses the man, the woman, and the serpent. I will put hostility between you and the woman. This isn't just cause and effect. No, God is the one who judges. Fast forward, Exodus 19. The whole point of giving the law is so that Israel might approach the Lord without being destroyed by his wrath. Verses 20 to 22 of Exodus 19. Go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord, otherwise many of them will die. Even the priests who come near the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out, here it is, in anger, in wrath against them. Now, and I don't just think that God's judgment and God's wrath is an Old Testament reality. No, when you fast forward to the New Testament, it's still there. Even in that classic gospel chapter, John 3, what do we find 20 verses after John 3, 16 and verse 36? The one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Notice that word, remain. You see, all humanity, every single person, without exception, is already under the wrath of God. That's our default status. We, we are a people under judgment. And the Apostle Paul confirms as much in Romans 1.18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's our fundamental problem. And in the end, one day, all of us will stand before God and face that final judgment. Here, these words of Acts 17.30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he's appointed. This isn't an easy truth, I get it, right? But we need to reckon with this reality. Our, our fundamental problem is not the world and its brokenness. Our fundamental problem is not our flesh and its weakness. Our fundamental problem is not the devil and his power. No, our fundamental problem is God and his wrath. But we need to understand this rightly because God's wrath, God's anger at our sin, it's not unhinged and it's not unjust. God's not somehow this abusive father who beats his children out of uncontrolled rage. That's not what we should think about. No, God is a perfectly just, perfectly righteous, and perfectly holy father who is rightly angry at the sin of his children. I want you to imagine for a moment a father who loves his daughter with all of his heart. Not only has he given her life, no, he gives her everything. A house, a home, a family, a future, whatever you name it, he's given it. He lavishes on this beloved daughter every blessing she could ever imagine. But one day, his daughter turns around 
looks at her father in the face, curses him, and spits in his face. And all the gifts he'd ever given, she then takes for herself, rejects her father, and leaves the house. Now, if you were that father, you loved your daughter, actually, surely it would be right, wouldn't it, even in your love? Actually, because of your love, it would be right to be angry, wouldn't it? And don't you feel almost a little bit angry? If you've been around for long enough, you've seen families where that's maybe not exactly the case, but where a child has forsaken their parents, and in your heart of hearts, there is a right anger in some sense. In fact, it would almost be wrong to not be. Romans 1.21 says, though we knew God, we did not glorify Him as God or show Him gratitude. We exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. You see, friends, we have done to God what that daughter did to her father. We have rejected Him who created us in love. People often think that sin is just doing bad things, you know. Adam, please pray for me. I sinned against someone. I you know, was lying, cheating, and stealing. And on one level, it all is. But that's just the surface. You see, at its crux, sin is not giving God the glory and gratitude He deserves as our Father. Sin is not loving God for the loving Father who He is to us. Sin is living a life not out of love for God, but living a life out of love for ourselves. All the actions, lying, cheating, stealing. No, that's just like the daughter taking her dad's gifts and walking away with them. But we all know that's not the real problem, right? Her deepest problem, her real problem, is that she's rejected the father who loves her. And so it's right. It's right that God is angry with us. Just as it is right for that father to be angry with his daughter in love. God's wrath isn't unjust or undeserved. No, it's not arbitrary and it's not capricious. It's not subject to uncontrolled rage or emotion. It's motivated by love, by justice, by righteousness. In fact, it's entirely right for God to judge us. And it's hard to hear, but it'd be entirely wrong if He didn't. That's our problem. That's our deepest problem. We are a people under wrath. It's not easy stuff to hear. You've heard that the gospel is good news, and you may think, what kind of good news is this? But if we're going to wreck it, if we're going to accept the glory of the good news of the gospel, we need to understand the backdrop against which it's set. So let me ask a question. Presupposing all of that, if you were God, what would you do? Interesting question, isn't it? If you were God, what would you do? And I suspect that there's really just two options there, right? If you were God and faced with humanity as sinful as us, what would you do, right? Well, the most obvious course of action, maybe this reveals more about my heart than yours, um, judge the world. Humanity deserves it. God isn't under any obligation to forgive us. It would be like the father disowning the daughter and all his friends would say, well, she made her, she made her call. God wouldn't be merciful, but He would be just, wouldn't He? He would be just. But maybe you're a bit more kind-hearted than me. And you might think, well, all of this, why does this have to die? Why doesn't God just forgive everyone? After all, if you say God is so loving, why doesn't He just expunge the record? Wave our guilt, shred our file as such. 
Why doesn't he just, or what we might say, expiate our sin, cancel it, control, alt, delete? It's gone. But how would you feel if that father just ignored his disobedience? If the courts just expunged the guilt of an abusive husband? If the world just waved away the crimes of a military dictator? You see, if God just expiated, just cancelled the sin of humanity, sure, he is merciful, but he would not be just. If God is to be a holy God, a good God, a righteous God, a God who takes holiness seriously, he must take sin seriously. And he cannot wave away our guilt. You see, if God is to be good, his wrath must be satisfied. If God is to be good, his wrath must be satisfied. So here's the question. And here's a dilemma that faces everyone in this room. How can God be both just and merciful? How can he forgive us and yet still uphold his righteousness? Where in the world can wrath and mercy meet? That's the question. And believe it or not, it's a question since the Old Testament. It's the plea of the prophet Habakkuk. In your wrath, remember mercy. In your wrath, remember mercy. And God does. And he does. He answers it with one word. Sacrifice. Salvation through sacrifice. That's the pattern of the scriptures. Salvation through sacrifice. If you've read Exodus 12, watch the Prince of Egypt or anything like that, you'll know. When God sends his angel to kill every firstborn male in the land of Egypt as a sign of judgment. But what does he do? He tells the Israelites to sacrifice an unblemished lamb and to paint the blood of that lamb onto the doorposts of its houses. And when God passes through Egypt in judgment, what happens in verse 13? The blood on the houses where you're staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. And get this, right? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Chris, can you see what's going on, right? The unblemished lamb is sacrificed in Israel's place. It bears God's wrath and secures their salvation. In that sacrificial lamb, we see a glimpse of the coming together of God's wrath and God's mercy. And that pattern of salvation through sacrifice, it runs right throughout the Old Testament. In Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, what does the high priest do? He sacrifices a bull which dies in Israel's place. And he also lays hands on a goat. He confesses all of Israel's sins over it. And he sends that goat off into the wilderness. And verse 22 says, the goat will carry all their iniquities into a desolate land and the man will release it there. You see, the the bull and the goat, that is a composite picture of what God is doing here. They avert, they satisfy, they redirect, they take on themselves, they propitiate God's wrath. They they take upon themselves the wrath that Israel would deserve so that Israel is spared the judgment of God. Did you see that picture? Yet again, wrath and mercy. Salvation through sacrifice. But here is the great problem. No sacrifice of an animal is ever sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world. Go figure. Hebrews 10 names the problem. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, in many ways, these these sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were signs and symbols of a far greater reality to come. 
They, they pointed forward to a far greater sacrifice, a final sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice that would be made once and for all. Just imagine then. Just picture it, what Israel should have thought, at least. When they saw the Lord Jesus and they heard John the Baptist cry out, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Did you see that moment, that, that penny drop right? What happened? Well, more of a mic drop that happens at the start of the New Testament? Jesus is that Lamb. Jesus will be the greater and final sacrifice. He will be the unblemished Lamb who dies in our place, bears God's judgment, and brings about a second exodus, a final exodus, and secures our salvation forever. We sung it just before, Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness. That's who He is. And just as He did in the very first exodus, I love this. God will see Jesus' blood and pass over all of us who are covered by it. You see, friends, that's why in Romans 3.25, Paul writes, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus dies in our place as a substitute for our salvation. As the spotless lamb, he lives the life that we could never have lived. And as the sacrificial lamb, he dies the death that we should have died. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Why is the cross the crux of Christianity? Because the cross is where Jesus bought our salvation at the cost of his own life. And the cruelty of the cross only serves to highlight the seriousness of our sin. And yet Jesus endured the cross. Despised the shame, he chose to suffer it all. He chose to bear our shame, the, the disgrace, the guilt, all so that you might be saved from God's wrath. Did you see how significant this is? The God who is our judge is the God who becomes our saviour. Sometimes we think that God, Jesus, saves us from some problem out there. But God saves us from himself. The, the, the God to whom we're in debt, he doesn't just cancel our debt. No, he pays for our debt at the cost of his own life. In the cross, he answers Habakkuk's cry. In wrath, remember mercy. For it is at the cross where wrath and mercy meet. It's there at the cross that according to Romans 3.26, God is both righteous and declares righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. You know, so often people seem to think that Christianity is all about being good enough for God. Living a moral enough life to buy our way into heaven. But if you really get this, if you really get the cross, you'll know just how actually antithetical that is to the gospel. 
It's just so contrary to the gospel. In fact, it's the exact opposite of the gospel. The cross tells us that, no, our sin is so deep that we'll never be able to merit heaven, no matter what we do. If anything, we will always merit hell. We'll always deserve God's wrath. We'll always deserve God's judgment. There's nothing you can do to buy your way into heaven. And yet at the cross, Jesus paid it all. He bore our wrath in full. There's nothing left to pay. What do you need to do, right, to escape God's judgment? Maybe you're not a Christian here and you've heard the first part of the sermon on the problem. We sit under the wrath of God. Well, Adam, if that's inescapable, how then shall I escape the judgment of God? The answer's clear. Repent. To stop living a life without God. Stop living a life under judgment and believe. Trust and hope in Jesus' death for us. It's not easy, but actually it's quite straightforward. If you're not a Christian, I want you to imagine just for a moment. Now, you might not believe this, right? But imagine with me for a moment that on the last day of of history, you are standing before God. You might not believe it, but roll with me for a moment, right? And as you stand there before God, God the judge, God the judge, God asks you to give an account for the life that you've lived. And he asks, did you live your life out of love for me, the God who gave you everything? What do you say? And what do you think God's verdict will be? If I'm honest, I know that if I stood before God on my own merits, I won't stand a chance. I won't stand at all. The truth is, I, I haven't lived out of love for God. I've lived out of love for myself. I've lived for what I want, what I desire, what I love. If I'm dead serious, the truth is I deserve God's wrath and I deserve His judgment. All of us do without exception. But, but if we repent of our sin and we stop living for ourselves, if we cling to the cross, trusting in Jesus' death on our behalf, His blood will cover us. He will have died in our place. He will stand in our place. And when we stand before God on that last day to give an account for his life, he won't see you. He won't see your sin. He'll see his son. And just like he did in the Exodus, when he sees the blood, he will pass over you. He will not judge you. For Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. Later this year, uh, grand final weekend, we've got a friend from Perth coming over called Steve McAlpine and he'll be coming to speak on what it looks like to live for Jesus in a world that is so set against the gospel. Recently, he wrote a book called Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't. And in that book, he names the top three questions, the top three questions consistently asked by high school students today. I wonder if you can guess what they are. Lack of purpose, loss of identity, and the fear of never being forgiven. Isn't that fascinating? Lack of purpose, loss of identity, but the third one, the fear of never being forgiven. We're so afraid, aren't we? That if we're found out, 
If we're caught out, we'll be cancelled, we'll be silenced, we'll be censored. We're afraid that we'll never outrun our sin, never outlive our past, never escape our shame. We're so afraid that if my family and friends knew, if they knew what I did, if they could see who I really was, they'd never forgive me. We're terrified of it. But God knows who you really are. He sees who you really are. And He knows everything that you've ever done. And yet because of Jesus, because Jesus died in our place, because He bore God's wrath for us, He won't reject you. He won't cancel you. He won't won't disown you. Now, the whole point of the gospel is so that you and I might be fully and freely forgiven. In Acts 5.31, the apostle Peter declares, God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and saviour. Why? To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Or in chapter 13 of Acts, Paul declares, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. And that's what's happening right now. Right now, God is extending to you, offering you the opportunity to have every sin ever committed to be forgiven. You see, friends, at its core, at its crux, the cross achieves the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus accomplishes this forgiveness all so that we might be reconciled with God. That's the goal. That's the end game. That you and I might be brought back into that loving relationship with God our Father. Finally, our sins will have been atoned for. We will be at one with God again. You see, friends, that's what atonement means, to to have our sins covered, to be at one with or reconciled with God. 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. You see, the heart of the gospel is the forgiveness of our sins. And then out of that wellspring of forgiveness flows all the other benefits of the cross, Right? The the transformation of our souls, the redemption of our bodies, the renewal of our world and the defeat of the devil. The benefits of the cross are not limited to forgiveness, but they all depend on it. It all starts there. It all starts with the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of sinners. Colossians 1, 19 to 20, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Big picture. But how? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You see, friends, the crux crux of Christianity is the cross of Christ where Jesus won the forgiveness of our sins. For those of you who remember Year 10 English, you may have had to study uh, that great Shakespearean tragedy in Macbeth. If you haven't, well, go home and read it, it's pretty good. 
If you've read it, you'll know that in that great tragedy, Lady Macbeth, she conspires to kill King Duncan. Spoiler alert, I'm sorry, he dies. She cannot cleanse her guilty conscience. She wakes up and paces around her chambers, sleepwalking at night, constantly rubbing her hands and crying out, out damned spot, what will these hands ne'er be clean? Out damned spot, what will these hands ne'er be clean? Here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. And then she sighs. What's done cannot be undone. And I wonder if some of us think about our sin a bit like that. You know, we all have that one sin in our life. That sin in our past or maybe even in our present today. Which we cannot wash away and no matter how hard we try no matter how many times we try and wash our hands or cleanse our souls we just can't shake that guilt just can't cover that shame we feel dirty and we just can't wash it away and we lament with lady macbeth don't we we sit there at the end of the night and we just think what's done cannot be undone But through the cross of Christ, it can. It can. What no perfume of Arabia can sweeten, the blood of Jesus can cleanse. Think of that one sin. You know the one I'm talking about. The one you can't forget. The one you can't wash away. The one that is seared into your mind and your memory. The one you just cannot forgive yourself for. Jesus died to forgive that sin. He died to cover that shame. He died to take that guilt away forever. You might not be able to forgive yourself but if you repent, I want you to know Jesus has. And actually, whose forgiveness ultimately matters more, yours or his? You see, if we value our forgiveness of ourselves most highly, we diminish the atoning power of Jesus' blood. Does that make sense? If we value our forgiveness of ourselves most highly, we diminish the atoning power of Jesus' blood. We are saying that actually Jesus' blood was not powerful enough to forgive us. For my forgiveness of myself matters far more. But brothers and sisters, there is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all, all their guilty stains. Sinners forgiven by God don't have to live in the fear of judgment. Brothers and sisters, we can live in the freedom of forgiveness. And if you're not a Christian, so can you. If you repent of your sin, if you turn to the Lord Jesus, if you cling to the cross, then all that you've ever done and all that you'll ever do can be fully and freely forgiven. Friends, there are so many things about God we can learn and know. There are so many truths to discover and depths to plumb. But this one truth, this one thing I know, 
that at the cross of Christ, we have been forgiven. Because it's at the cross that God makes himself fully known. It's here that we see his holiness in judging every sin. It's here that we see his mercy in forgiving wretched sinners. It's here that we see his generosity in the giving of his son. And it's here that we see his love in reconciling this whole world back to him. So here's my question. Will you come? Will you come to the foot of the cross? Will you lay your life down for him who laid his life down for you? Will you come to the cross and find forgiveness full and free? Let me pray. Gracious God, we praise you for the giving of your Son. We are sorry for the countless ways in which we have lived for ourselves and not lived out of love for you, the God who has given us everything. We are sorry for valuing our own lives, our own pleasures, our own wants and our own desires. We are sorry for making ourselves the king and queens of our lives and not living with you as our God. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for forgiving our sins. Thank you for giving us your Son to die in our place on that cross. Please forgive us. Please accept us. Please cover our sin, cleanse our shame, and reconcile us with you. These things we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.